Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. And welcome to Dear Hank and John, or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Roman Mars. That's right. <laughs> it's a podcast where John, your second favorite green brother, is joined by your very favorite podcast host, Roman Mars, to answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Roman, you're the host of 99% Invisible. I am. One of my favorite podcasts of all time. Oh, thank you. How come you keep coming on Dear Hank and John? <laughs> because this is one of my favorite podcasts of all time. This is <laughs> this is my family's podcast. Like so the twins when I have them in the car, we we uh we pull up to Dear Hank and John and when the question comes up, uh they they know I hate it when people talk over the podcast. So they they, <laughs> they reach forward because I can't listen to two things at once. I've I've gotten old, you know. Like I and they reach forward. I can relate. They reach forward and they hit pause on the little console, and they'll answer the question before you have a chance to answer it. And they go, "I think I know this." And then and then and this is just a part of um, our life. So so dear Hank John is <laughs> is is very important to me. So I'm really honored to be here. Well, we are thrilled that you're here. The last time you were here, and we don't usually bring this kind of thing up at the beginning of the podcast, but something extraordinary has happened that I need to inform you about. The last time you were here, you and Hank were uh, chatting about, remind me exactly what it was. It was how many chickens would need to be in space before humans would notice. Is that correct? I think it was something like that. Like, I don't recall it. Perfectly. Great, great. So we have received the following email from Rachel that I simply cannot wait to tell you about. Dear John and Hank, here in the astronomy community, we take two things very seriously, knowing everything that is in space and April Fool's Day. For this April Fool's Day, uh, I roped a postdoc friend of mine into doing some math in order to answer the question that Hank and Roman Mars recently examined. How many chickens would there need to be in space before we would notice. Uh, 
This resulted in a scientific paper, Roman, called Nuggets of Wisdom, which is a good pun. <laughs> good. There's a lot of, lot of good puns in this paper. But I would just like to read you one sentence from the abstract and one sentence from the introduction. The abstract begins, the lower limit on the chicken density function, CDF, of the observable universe was recently determined to be approximately 10 to the 21 chickens per parsec. <laughs> For over a year, however, the scientific community has struggled to determine the upper limit to the CDF. So we know the lower limit to the CDF, right. but what is the upper limit to the CDF? And then the introduction begins as follows. The chicken density function, CDF, entered the scientific spotlight in a March 2022 episode when a listener of the podcast, Dear Hank and John, wrote in with a question. Oh my God. The rest of the paper is epic. <laughs> Uh, There's uh, so much math. I can't read it. I don't, yeah. I don't know what any yeah. of this stuff means. But the conclusion is that there would need to be about 10 to the 18th power chickens inside the orbit of the Earth for us to start noticing. Wow. That's a lot of chickens. Very close to the Earth. I know. That's a lot of chickens. I, I, <laughs> I was also surprised. <laughs> Goodness I thought gracious. it would be in the, I thought it would be maybe in the hundreds of thousands but yeah. then no you could put a lot of chickens in orbit well, before I... it would start to block our view <laughs> <laughs> Oh that is amazing oh what a great what a great way to start this episode <laughs> we're never gonna we're never gonna reach those heights unfortunately so I hope you enjoyed listening to dear John and Roman <laughs> everything after this is gonna be a disappointment. <laughs> Oh, I love it. All right. So good. You're an expert in ar architecture and, uh, and sort of the built world. Okay. Yeah, maybe. So I, I wanted to ask you this question about an apartment. Mm -hmm. Dear John and Roman, is it a moral failing to find a living roach in my apartment? <laughs> Does a cockroach show up because I haven't cleaned thoroughly enough as if to lecture me before I kill it? Or do they just wander in because they happen to be in the neighborhood? Do I have to vacuum and scrub every surface now that I have seen this roach not trapped in the metamorphosis, Rebecca? Hmm. I would say it is not a moral failing at all. Agree. But, oh, maybe you haven't cleaned thoroughly enough. <laughs> oh, I think that's victim blaming. <laughs> no, I just know that it isn't the fault. Like, it isn't because you haven't cleaned enough. But if you want to never have a roach again, you should clean, like, all mm. the time and get rid of, like, all the crumbs and all the, like, don't leave dog food out and things like that. You know, like, there's a, that's a, it's a way, it's part of the, you know, sort of, like, tactical warfare when it comes to mm -hmm. cockroaches, but they will get there. Um, they're everywhere. Uh, you know. They're everywhere. Yeah. They'll be at the very end, yeah. you know, like, right <laughs> before the heat death of the universe, yeah. they'll be there. Yeah. I think they come in... And I, I take this quite personally because <laughs> it's an ongoing argument in our family whether the primary reason why we might have uh, bugs or, or, or other, other non-human animals inside of our home is because of a failure in the architecture, mm -hmm. which is what I maintain, <laughs> like that there are little gaps that allow the roaches to come in. I see. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where they are. I don't think the roaches are born inside the house, you know? Yeah. Well. And so I think that there's, I think that's the failing. And Sarah maintains that the failing is that I am filthy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. 
And so I was really asking Rebecca's question as a kind of proxy question to you. Yeah, yeah. And I don't like your answer. <laughs> I do not think that you could construct a house so tight as to not have a cockroach be able to wind its way through it. Um, but you could just pick up after yourself, John. You really could. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I don't want to disagree with you guys. It's just respect you a lot. I think of you as a friend, um, but you definitely could could construct a house tight enough that it. I know you could because, like, you can you can make a box. Like, you could make a box that a a, a, a roach can get true. into, and a house is essentially a very large box. It is a very large box. But if you wanted sort of a hermetically sealed, you know, like white room in which you you know do your viral research or whatever it is um yeah you <laughs> yeah. could probably avoid any roaches that's, but otherwise that's what i want <laughs> so that i can be as dirty as i want i don't want to do it for like viral research i want to do it i don't want to like keep smallpox inside the room or whatever right. i just want to be able to be the person i want to be in the space <laughs> i want to be in without risking a roach yeah i mean have you considered putting a box inside the box like your own great idea your own space oh, just oh like wow this. if we pitch that idea to sarah she'll be like amazing i love it <laughs> give, give him a little box in the corner where he can go and eat drop all of his crumbs <laughs> Let him just let him just sneak into his little box whenever he wants to eat, and then he can come out when he's done. He can pile all the dishes in there that he wants to pile. That's fine because that's his box. That's right. It's the only answer. All right, I think we've come to a conclusion, Rebecca. You just need to build a hermetically sealed box inside of your apartment. Dear Roman and John, I know a species is considered native if it is in a certain region due only to natural evolution. But is there a specific amount of time after which a species can be considered native? Is the definition of native species exclusively related to human interference? Or could animals or other causes, such as natural disaster displacing a species, also make a species non-native? Also, is there such a thing as a plant being considered culturally native? For example, orange trees being a significant part of Spanish culture despite not being native to Spain. Curious to know Mordecai. That's a really good name-specific sign-off, Mordecai. Yeah, it is. It's very good. What do you think? Well, I have a strong opinion about this because I live in Indianapolis, which, depending on your definition of native species, how far back does it go mm -hmm. is the first question. Because if it goes back over 12,000 years, there's no native species to Indiana other than ice. <laughs> Because right. all of this was covered by a glacier that was like 4,000 feet thick. And maybe there was some moss and stuff, but there weren't any like big, big parties. Mm -hmm. But I am particularly fascinated by this tree called the ginkgo tree, the, the ginkgo biloba. Yeah. And there were no ginkgo trees in Indianapolis until about 120 years ago. In fact, not to brag, but the first ginkgo tree in Indianapolis uh, was was planted by Kurt Vonnegut's great-great-grandfather, and I, I get to walk past it sometimes. Mm -hmm. So the ginkgo is an invasive species in the sense that it's not native to Indianapolis, except, except until two million years ago, there were ginkgo trees right here along the banks of the White mm, River. Interesting. interesting. So it's not a native tree, but it also is a native tree. Mm -hmm. I think, and I'm interested to get your perspective. Yeah, yeah. But I think that when we think of 
Like I've been talking to a lot of uh, horticulturalist people lately because we're planting a bunch of trees around here to try to even the score. I've I've caused a lot of you have too. Yeah. <laughs> You've caused a lot of trees to be cut yeah, down. Fair enough. And I I think I don't I don't like to get too much into my religious beliefs, but I think that's a significant impediment to getting into heaven. <laughs> and so I'm trying to plant some trees to even the score a little bit yeah, yeah. so that St. Saint, Saint Peter won't be so pissed off with me when I get up there. And um, I've, one of the things that I've learned, at least in talking to these, uh, these, these landscapey people, is that we tend to th- I tend to think of like native or non-native as being, uh, in terms of plants, as being a dichotomy, like a light switch that's either on or off. Yeah. But they think of it much more as a spectrum, Mm -hmm. which I tend to find is the case with a lot of experts, like things that I think of uh, as a a layperson, as as dichotomous, um, people who are experts in the field tend to think of as spectral. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, especially with this idea that the the ginkgo could be kind of grandfathered in or, you know, Kurt Vonnegut's grandfathered into <laughs> our, you know, into our understanding since it was, um, it, you know, it existed, you know, well before humans and then, and then was introduced later. I mean, you know, this, the simple explanation of what non-native is, is it's, you know, just if humans weren't involved, it's native. And if humans were, it's right. non-native. Um, but I can see how that would be a, pro- you know, like it's, it is sort of, a little bit of a false dichotomy when it comes to like how we operate in the world and um and definitely sort of chance events with sort of animal distribution and whatever you know animophila wind uh, distribution you know could uh introduce something to an area which is you know it's kind of a stunning achievement and just because it's not a human doesn't mean it's um not sort of remarkable right. and sort of unique in, in it in the way that it would invade would be exactly the same. Um, so, so uh, I, I think this is right. fascinating, you know, uh, I'm not sure. We're not the only weird species and activity moving things around. For sure. Like when, when, oh my God, I'm going to, this is like a deep pull, so it might be completely wrong, <laughs> but I, I love that. <laughs> that's, Hey, that's what this podcast is all about, Roman. Deep, deep cuts but, that might be wrong, but we're not going to research. <laughs> but basically like up until the point that people realized that the, uh, you know, plate tectonics that the the continents moved around. There was, uh, you know, a a great amount of study to sort of justify the movement of you know plant and animal species across these very you know like far flung continents. And it was so advanced, like the you know like I as as I recall this story <laughs> very distantly from my uh, education, like. A, like a large book just came out at the very moment, right before plate tectonics, that was like describing in like in great <laughs> detail how all the animals and plants made it. It was like the unified theory of, of yeah. movement. And then and then like a year later, uh, geologists were like, okay, so here's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, there may be a simpler explanation than this like 1400 page theory of everything. And, and, and you know, and then all of a sudden the distribution made more sense because the right. things were on the land and they, as it moved along and, you know, and glaciers came and all that sort of stuff. And so right. um, the, the point being is like, 
you can get very far. I mean, islands are obviously populated by things that get, you know, that feel just as like extreme interventionist as a human that land on a place. And it is not natural that it lands there, but it is natural that it lands there. And, and I like to think of myself is not so much separate from nature as, as a part of nature. Yeah. Right, right. Like we think of ourselves as being artificial, even though we are made out of earth and everything <laughs> inside of us is earth. That's right. We're we're not that artificial of an intelligence as 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 artificiality goes. Yeah. You know what your story and I don't know if you know this about me lately, but I like to relate everything to the history of human responses to tuberculosis <laughs> and your story <laughs> your story about um uh, about plate tectonics reminds me of the story about tuberculosis, which means that I have to tell it, yes. and I'm extremely sorry. But <laughs> so this guy Robert Koch is the guy who finally proved to uh, to at least to the to the uh, lots of people already knew that tuberculosis was a, a contagious disease, uh, like like lots of people in the Americas and and in uh, parts of Asia. But in Northern Europe, especially, it was it was really seen as having it had to be inherited Mm -hmm. because it went with all these personality traits, um, these sort of like personality traits we associate with with or we associated with civilization, like intelligence and emotional sensitivity and and just sort of being like a John Keatsy type of character. Mm -hmm. And so in 1881, (laughs) this medical textbook was published that like had a whole chapter on the, the so-called like uh, consumptive personality, like what kinds of people were inevitably going to get consumption. And it was the same thing where it was like this kind of theory of everything that explained every case of uh, consumption that anybody could possibly get as associated with like this personality trait or else like that thing happening in childhood or your parents did this or whatever. Yeah. And then literally the next year, Robert Koch was like, no, I'm pretty sure it's this bacteria. <laughs> I I found it. Here's a picture of it. <laughs> I think it's that, uh, which yeah, like rendered like the the biggest medical textbook in Northern Europe totally out of date yeah. in six months. Love it, love it. I it's not even that good of a tuberculosis story. It's just that I know it, and I want it. I want you to know it. I'm I'm one of the people who who maybe I'm the one person who cheers when a tuberculosis story a tuberculosis story like. Uh, starts to come up on a dear Hank and John. I'm like more. I, I just can't all. believe it. I just I I still can't. I still cannot. I cannot believe. I cannot believe that tuberculosis is at the center of human history in such dramatic, obvious ways, from the stethoscope to the cowboy hat to the existence of the state of New Mexico. <laughs> but but I also I cannot. Uh, on like a more serious, like less like funny haha note, I cannot believe that 40 million people have died of tuberculosis in this century. And I didn't know any of that. Mm-hmm. I thought that like tuberculosis was a disease of the past. So I think like my obsession with tuberculosis is really about like my confoundedness of, of thinking of myself as a reasonably um, engaged person and certainly an engaged person when it comes to potential health problems. Mm-hmm. And, and yet- I had no, I just had no idea. So it's so like, it's just so, it's, it really has reoriented my understanding of the world. Well, I love that stuff. All right, let's, let's move on to another question. And I will do my best to not relate it to tuberculosis. <laughs> this is about an old Instagram account, which Robert Koch did, did, no, he didn't. All right, Missy asks, dear John and Roman, I have an old Instagram account that I forgot the password to a couple years ago that has quite a few followers and a couple thousand posts in parentheses it was a finsta now we should stop here what is a what is a finsta do you know i have no idea 
Okay. Well, what could it be? <laughs> could it be a financial Instagram? Yeah. Like where that you use to raise money? Like a like a GoFundMe? A Finsta. A Finsta. I mean, that sounds like that to me because like FinTech is like financial tech and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll just assume that. It was a Finsta. <laughs> there are some things that I've said on that account that totally are not reflective of who I am today and that I'm not proud of. Like, did you raise money via a lie? It doesn't matter. Yeah. That's that's the point, is that Missy said things that they're not proud of. <laughs> I don't know the email it's linked to. It was probably a fake one, nor the phone number. So basically, it's up forever. What do I do if I get famous and successful <laughs> in these old posts from when I was 14 to 18 and stupid get surfaced? Definitely going to be canceled. Missy. Wow. Ooh, oh, God. Gosh. I mean, I really, I, I would like to say, like, I'm so grateful I don't have this problem. Yeah. But I, I might. Yeah. I think everyone and is going to have it uh, soon. I'm ter- I'm terrified. I mean, yeah. I'm really scared of it. Like, I also said a lot of things, Missy, when I was younger and not just 18. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That totally. I like, that do not reflect who I am today, right? <laughs> like, I think that's... That's that's the hope, right? Is that you're not the same person at 45 that you were at 25 or 15. Absolutely. But but there is a way that the internet sort of like turns things into a in well first off like, you know, like I guess it makes sense to be held accountable for like being that person on some level, but like the 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 internet kind of turns things into a um I feel this with publishing too a little bit. It turns things into like a like time stops. Like yeah, I get yeah. older but those books don't totally like I grow up and my books don't. And that's part of why people like my books, because now if I wrote some of those older books, I would be, they would be way less good, but way more mature. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you would have thought through the problems and then, you know, (laughs) and like, and totally cut cut them off at the past, you know, like they would have gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. 50 pages long. (laughs) Right. It would be like a, it'd be like a 60 page book. You go like buck up. Where kid. like the whole the whole the whole thing it'd be more like, hey, don't make these bad choices. Okay? Why are you romanticizing this girl? Just don't do it. It's immature, man. Yeah. Yeah. So I would be much preachier and much more like a dad, which would probably make the books worse. But that's who I am now. Yeah. And I'm much more proud of this person. Anyway, the point is like, I don't know, how do you deal with this? Because you've you've been a public person for a long time. Yeah. How do you deal with it? Oh. The one story that comes to mind is I did a tweet during sort of the height of the sort of <laughs> the sort of democratic nomination when it was uh, Barack Obama uh, versus Hillary Clinton. And my tweet was 2008. 2008. My tweet was something like, I met like a diehard Hillary person and it was kind of weird. Because at that point I had, I was always, always surrounded by <laughs> Barack Obama people. Okay. And some, you know, there's, then there was some Twitter meme, you know, eight years later that was kind of like, hey, go find uh, an eight year old tweet and repost it, you know. <laughs> and it just so happens that eight years later, Hillary Clinton was running against Donald Trump. <laughs> and this tweet resurfaced and people were like, Roman, oh, no. what the hell? You know? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and I was so, and it was like, the, the thing was just so innocent because at the time it was just like, it was really like this 
this cool it was actually kind of a cool anomaly like i met like an organizer for hillary it was kind yeah. of weird you know like because right. you didn't you, yeah you didn't mean it as as an insult <laughs> it's just like it was kind of surprising to you coming from the world that you came from right. that there were like because like i think uh, like my parents were like this in 2008 they were like hillary clinton supporters but not like aggressive about right, it right, right right you know they weren't like knocking on doors and 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 at the time, you know, there was so much energy for Barack Obama. I was just like, you yeah, know, like that was what yeah. I that was the the sea I was swimming in, you know. And so so anyway, so this is like my mild version of this, and it was extremely yeah. uncomfortable to try to explain that in, with some kind of nuance when it seemed like you know a choice was about to be made that was going to destroy the world, you know. And so mostly what I do, and since then, I think over time. I have removed more of my personality and my takes on things um, just in general as a protective measure. Yeah, because I should do that, but I can't stop. <laughs> I can't stop. I, I need to stop, but I can't stop. And and I really do focus on um, positive things, you know, like, yeah. and, and, and I just hope that, you know, that that doesn't get taken poorly I, I i don't i don't know it's just sort of like right I, right i don't know i because you don't want to seem like a pollyanna like everything's golden yeah but yeah i think what the internet is is missing is hope yeah. <laughs> and like a kind of like i think the most punk rock thing in the world right now is earnest earnestness and optimism yeah i agree yeah they're so radically countercultural. totally totally and, and so I think that is what the internet needs. But then sometimes when I'm doing that, I think, am I going to come across as somebody who's oblivious to the world's problems? Like even when I was writing the Anthropocene Reviewed, I was super conscious of that because I was like, I remember I was writing the intro and I was like, I want this to be about this desire to fall in love with the world. But then I was like, oh, but that's going to seem like I don't care about injustice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't, I, I, and I think like everything's like beautiful and amazing on earth and you know, and, and that's not how I feel, of course. Yeah, like, I think yeah. it's a complicated story. And then, but then you're, so, yeah. So I really, I really struggled with finding, finding the way through that. How do you be earnestly hopeful while still acknowledging the, the reality, not just of suffering, but also of, of the unjust distribution of suffering? Absolutely. It is so hard to represent yourself um, thoroughly <laughs> and completely. And it's just, your hope is that you know, if this Finsta, whatever that is, is discovered, it's sort of taken totality with everything else right. that you've produced and made. And, and, you know, and, you know, there, there is a habit of, um, when people get into arguments, it's, uh, easier to land a blow on someone who is more like you, who would feel your admonishment than someone who is so different from you they do not care <laughs> that right. you, they hate you or whatever right. or you hate right. them and right. and so there's a it creates a kind of um i'm thinking of like an eo wilson valley where the where the evolution is very hard to sort of like skip over because it's so painful to change you you get you get hurt by the people you like the most during that period of time mm -hmm. or whatever mm -hmm. and so um so I'm 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 sympathetic to this and 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 hopefully well I mean now everyone's going to be trying to find Missy's Finsta 
<laughs> but 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 like I mean it sounds like it's going to be pretty hard since Missy doesn't know the name of the email address associated with the Finsta or the password like but but let's all let, but like we have don't we have to kind of forgive ourselves don't we have to kind of forgive 14 year olds absolutely because they're 14 absolutely and and to some extent like I I know that I know that that's not a blanket statement but like we we have to acknowledge that these people's brains are getting formed and yeah. they are capable of change and in fact like will and need to change totally and it should be celebrated when it when it does happen and uh yeah. and not sort of you know not sort of taking the task or um but i you know but i'm sensitive to the idea of this sort of like reaction to cancel culture which is a thing i don't uh, fundamentally uh, believe exists in the way that it's presented a lot of the time right and um and so it, it's just one of those really, really tricky things. And what what I would recommend is just like be out there, be good, be a good person in the world, and um, and this type of stuff will will hopefully never be discovered. And if it ever is, you part of the story is that you become this new person, which is super important. Yeah, and 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 in a way, like I I think the argument that like becoming that new person doesn't um, erase the hurt that you may have caused for sure. Or the hurt that you did cause is is important to acknowledge as well, and that's part of the way that the kind of conversation around so called cancel culture I think gets really uh, off track. Is that it needs to allow for both of these realities, mm-hmm. both the reality that people grow and change, and the reality that people can cause harm and then grow and change, and that harm is still real. Totally, it's such a mess. I just don't, I, I'm, I feel sorry for anyone who had to navigate it, um, very, very young. And, uh, yeah, and, I mean, exactly like to be, to be a, uh, yeah, I don't even, when I was 18 years old, I don't, I don't remember. I, I don't remember what I was like. <laughs> I don't, I wasn't great. No. I smoked a lot of cigarettes. Sarah's only Sarah, Sarah went to the same high school I did. So she sort of remembers me from high school. And she's like, the only thing I really remember about you is that you like, kind of smelled like really stale smoke and you were like sort of cute but mostly because you seemed like trouble (laughs) and that's like so different from my personality now like nobody would like see me today and be like he's sort of hot but only because he seems like trouble (laughs) yeah that's a real 180 right there (laughs) yeah nobody nobody on earth seems like less trouble like (laughs) about as intimidating as a as a goldfish that's left its bowl like i'm I'm clearly not in the environment in, in which i in which i thrive if there even is such a thing <laughs> totally all right i like that we're answering que- questions very slowly and not that many of them that's my it's it's hank's least favorite kind of hey dear hank and john but it's my favorite oh good good well i'm here to say i think it's going to be okay about this finsta but to be fair, we don't really know what a Finsta is, so it might not be okay. <laughs> be I wish I could give you like a blanket blanket reassurance. Maybe if it's a fascist Insta account, maybe then you Ooh, would have some problems, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, but, you know. I hope there's not a whole genre of Finsta. Like, I've heard the word Finsta before, and if it was all about fascism, <laughs> I think... I think I would know that. Yeah, okay. I think it's about fundraising. Okay. All right. And if you fundraised under like a false pretense, man, that's not great. But mm. I don't know. You, you were 14. You should apologize, try to make back the money and give it back. Agreed. Kiwa asks, dear 
John and Roman. Someone I love very much is going through a tough grieving process. His girlfriend, the love of his life, suddenly had to move for work, and no one knows when she'll come back. He's having a very hard time with her absence, and can't. Well, no one knows when she'll come back. <laughs> okay. Can't you call her? Yeah, yeah. He's having a very hard time. Did she go to space? He's having a very hard time with her absence and can't understand why she has left or where she has gone. Why does he call her? Yeah. Or that she will be back eventually. How can I help him in this trying time? Important context, he is a horse. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, that, there we go. There we He's go. A horse. He's a horse, of course. Yeah. He's a horse. Okay. His girlfriend is another horse oh. who went away to training for a while. He doesn't understand English other than his name and the words no and good boy. Mm. Doesn't he understand like, what's the, what do you say? Giddy up. <laughs> Does he understand giddy up? Yeah. <laughs> what's the other one you say? Halt. Uh, ho, whoa. Ho. Whoa. Or something like whoa, that. Whoa, whoa. It's whoa. You say whoa. Yeah. Kiwa, you've come to the right place. In addition to being Finsta experts, Roman and I are yeah. clearly yeah. equestrians. Cowboys. <laughs> through and through. <laughs> Dangerous, dangerous, dangerous boys. <laughs> all Hot and dangerous. All I remember about you is the stale smell of cigarette smoke, a little bit of danger, and how you rode that horse. <laughs> <laughs> there's, if there's anybody on earth who looks less comfortable on a horse than I do, I haven't met them. All right, Kiowa, we've got a we've got a horse problem. Yeah. Oh. This is a bummer. I remember this happened when, when there was a period in my life where I had two dogs, mm-hmm. but the 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 do- one of the dogs died, yeah. Um, yeah. and it was awful. Like because the other dog was just confused and heartbroken, and I felt like I mean maybe I was maybe this is anthropomorphizing, but I felt like the other dog was like, why did you take away? My and best friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like they didn't like, they didn't get to like go through the grieving. They didn't like see the death. They didn't, you know, they weren't like, so they were just, I think they were just confused and, and, and super sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't have a solution for this. I just thought it was sad. Yeah. Or alternatively, maybe they view all absences as death, like a kind of like, oh, you know, like a fundamental, like, object impermanence type of thing that they just like but then sometimes like death is followed by rebirth and then other times it isn't mm-hmm. i mean the thing is when it comes to this stuff is like you can never address the true problem but um addressing the symptoms uh is pretty good which is touch your horse you know be with your horse yeah do things with your horse and there will be fleeting moments in which they will not feel this pain. And that's, uh, you know, then that's, if that's the best you can do, and it probably is the best anyone can do, then that's what you should do. That's also probably the best that we can usually do for each other. Agreed. You know, is, is accompaniment. Yeah. Like, can't solve this problem for you because it's not solvable. Yeah. And also, you don't uh, need me to solve it because you already know that it's unsolvable. Yeah. And so my attempts to, like, solve it or minimize it are not actually what you need. What you actually need is just accompaniment. Yeah. Yeah. Just to not be so alone. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I, I know this chaplain, Vanessa Zoltan, who's also a great podcast host. And uh, she told me a story once about being with somebody in the midst of like terrible, terrible crisis and, and loss. And uh, this person saying something like, um, 
like my life will never be the same. And instead of saying like, well, you know, in time it'll get better, Vanessa said, I know. Mm-hmm. And like just the acknowledgement of the hugeness of what was happening is more of a gift than trying to minimize somebody's experience. Yeah, absolutely. Or some horse's experience. <laughs> and the good news is, is you get to spend a lot of time with a horse. And this seems like a nice horse. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It seems like a, it seems like a good horse with big feelings, yeah. which my kind of horse, I like a, <laughs> I like an emotionally engaged horse. <laughs> Same. Before this, Roman and I were talking mm-hmm. and uh, we were talking about how some, some people hosting this podcast have, um, are a bit, are a bit ruminative, <laughs> bit, spend, spend a lot of time thinking, spend a lot of time analyzing and, uh, Roman said the most beautiful thing I've ever heard, and I I promised him I was going to give him a year to use it. Not even, but I can't. Not even thirty minutes. I I can't. I didn't even give him forty minutes. What he said was, you know, it really is true that the unexamined life isn't worth living, but the overexamined life isn't much better. (laughs) It's so true. Why do I overexamine life? Why does that horse overexamine life? It's going to be fine. Your girlfriend's coming back, man. Why do I overexamine life? Yeah. The overexamined life also isn't that great. Yeah. Where's all the attention for the overexamined know, life? That reminds me. That reminds me that today's podcast is brought to you by the overexamined life. <laughs> the overexamined life. It's a Roman Mars original that I stole 40 <laughs> minutes after he said it. This podcast is also brought to you by 10 to the 18 chickens. <laughs> That's a lot of chickens. That's a lot of chickens. <laughs> I don't know if that accounts for their spacesuits, you know? But I, maybe they don't need to have spacesuits. Yeah. It didn't, doesn't say living chickens. <laughs> it's chickens. Today's podcast is additionally brought to you by Finsta. Finsta. Is it financial? I'm not looking it up. Yeah, I don't, don't I'm don't never going to look it up. This podcast is also brought to you by Boxes Inside of Boxes, a place where you can be messy <laughs> and eat and free of cockroaches or maybe just live in harmony with cockroaches. That's <laughs> <laughs> all up to you. So listen, your toilet is massively gross, like it's grosser than you think. In fact, bacteria and viruses can hang around in the toilet bowl even after multiple flushes. And I recently found the easiest way to clean my toilet, Blue Land's Sustainable Toilet Cleaner Tablets. Just drop, watch it fizz, brush, and flush. It is truly that simple. No more scrubbing for hours. Plus, the tablets are plastic-free. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and for the planet with the same powerful clean that you're used to. Blue Land products are effective and affordable, and their toilet tablets are proven to work on a wide range of toilet stains, including rust, mineral deposits, lime scale, and hard water. And you can even get more savings by buying refills in bulk or setting up a subscription. Blue Land has a special offer for our listeners. Right now, you can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss this blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. That's blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by ZocDoc. Look. 
there are, I think it's fair to say, some imperfections in the American healthcare system, but there are ways that it actually has recently gotten easier. I don't compromise on a lot of things, but I do not love feeling like I can't find the right doctor for me. And I've gotten very lucky that I have found some good doctors for me. When it comes to your health, there shouldn't be compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines slash their family group chat slash their crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or they happen to take your insurance. Instead, like you don't have to keep going back to a doctor who you don't like. You can check out ZocDoc, a place where you can find and book doctors who make you feel comfortable, who listen to you, who prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance type. So literally, no compromises. Because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you think. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. No more phone calls and waiting on hold with a receptionist. We don't have time for this anymore. And these doctors all have verified reviews from actual, real patients. Booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. The typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even sometimes score same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then you can book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc.com slash DearHank. ZocDoc.com slash DearHank. Every time I know it's coming and I'm like, I'm going to have to say doc, ZocDoc.com right now, aren't I? And then I do. I'm getting good at it, everybody. ZocDoc.com. This next question comes from Max, who writes, Dear John and Roman, recently I was at an ice cream store that has an arcade machine in the corner, and I went over to play there and I found six quarters resting on the machine. Can I use those quarters? No one else was around who looked like the quarters were theirs. <laughs> was someone coming back for them? Did they just leave them there for someone to use? I've had this happen a couple times before, and mm. I can't decide if it's morally right to use them. Only a little mad, Max. Yeah, use them. I think you got to. Yeah. I think they're there for, on purpose. I think they're there left for you. Right. And then maybe if you feel a little weird about using them, like after you have that like four to five minutes of gaming joy that um, six quarters can buy you these days, <laughs> you go to the ice cream store and you're like, hey, can I can I get six quarters? And you just yeah, leave the will. six quarters there for the next person. But I think that I think it's just for you. Yeah. I was recently at a uh, arcade, a pinball thing. Oh. And there was a I, I'm a big pinball fan. Yeah, I, uh, Martine on our show is a huge pinball fan, and oh. I'm a big admirer. I'm just so not good at it that I have not. Oh sort of, yeah, you know, like I haven't grabbed onto it as a hobby, but I love it. Right, I'm not good either. I my it's very much like my relationship with skateboarding. You know, like I admire the people who are very good at it, and I think that it's very beautiful. But then when I play, it's it's a pretty fast game. <laughs> but I just love the machines. I love the noises. It's yeah. like all the. Yeah. It's like everything that a casino can give you. But it's way less expensive. Totally. <laughs> and so anyway, I was at this pinball arcade and there was a pinball machine with four plays on it. Mm -hmm. And I think it had four plays on it because the person before me had scored, you know, like 700 billion points right. or whatever yeah. and then just walked away. But I did. I went to the I went to the pinball uh, wizard guy who runs the pinball arcade. And I was like, hey, this, you know, this machine has four free plays on it. And he just looked he looked at me like what's wrong with you? I was like, can, do you think I, do you think I can use them? And he was like, yeah, yeah, you can use them. Like, otherwise you're going to put 
a dollar in the machine and then it's going to have five free fries. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I think yeah. you should just use them. Yeah. You should just use them. Live like that guy. But I love the idea of like, um, leaving six other quarters, but you definitely use the ones that are there and put new quarters on. <laughs> totally. hundred <laughs> percent critical. Yeah. 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 Uh, do you have a favorite quarter? Oh, you mean like in the, the sort of the state varieties of quarters? Or like maybe it's the original. Maybe you like that eagle. Yeah. Oh, or maybe you like the bicentennial. I loved the bicentennial yeah. one when I was a kid. I was like, because it was so special. Yeah. But now all the all the quarters look weird. They, they do. And it's sort of, um, I would say I don't at this point, although I, we, you know, someone pitched us a story once about all the quarters and I, that is the type of story I would love to know you know, like, yeah, I would, I would, I would follow that thread, but it, you know, I don't know if it jazzed like everyone else on staff, which is why Fry White didn't sort of make it. But like yeah. the, I do think there's a, a little bit of a problem with all the special quarters is like, if they're all special, like, like, um, no one is special. None of them. Yeah. Right. And, and so you don't get an affinity for that, like, like, like that bicentennial quarter, which showed up every once in a while, um, right. that you could, you know, like, attach some meaning to but I, I have to admit i'm i'm really in generally i'm just pretty delighted by each one because i love that type of def, you know sort of um the federal civic symbolism when i love yeah. finding out what people choose to represent themselves is is super interesting to me and so but i, I don't know if I, I can't name my favorite i can barely even picture one of them but i you know i spend time looking at them for sure I know that you're a flag enthusiast, yeah. and one of the things that I like most about Indianapolis, yeah. maybe the thing that I like most about Indianapolis is our city flag. Good flag. Good Really flag. good flag. Yeah. Doesn't say Indianapolis on Doesn't. it, which makes it rare yeah. and valuable on its own, mm -hmm. but it's also a really good flag. And then the state of Indiana, and this is a huge surprise because you would think that it would have a terrible flag, mm. and it has a bad one, but like it's not nearly as bad as most state flags. Um, I think it's a good I don't know state if, flag. It's the, uh, it's a, yeah, they could take the word Indiana off of it, and then it would be great. But um, if I'm picturing it right, right, it's the one with the torch and the you know it, and, the, it and is. the thing. Yeah, they could sort of a totally dark blue background, yeah. golden torch, and then some stars around it. It's it's beautiful. I, I totally agree. It doesn't. It would improve greatly. Just take the word Indiana off of it. But the the bones of it. If you if you did that, are, are, right. are real solid in my opinion. Yeah, um, no, I agree. Yeah. But Indianapolis is a great is a great city flag, and it has the I don't know it, it has a it's basically a cross that's centered, and then it has that uh, uh, white star with a round red circle. Yeah, and um, it's it's lovely. I, I just was talking about the Indianapolis flag yesterday. <laughs> Oh wow! <laughs> with with Michael Green, who runs a, a a thing called Flags for Good, and he was telling me about the original version of that. That, that this is about a seventy year old flag, I think, roughly. And um, the original version of it had it had the had the cross off center, like a, like more like a Nordic cross. And oh, and it like won a contest, or someone designed it. It won a contest. He the the designer left the state, and it was adopted. And he came back to Indianapolis at some point, and then the flag was flying, and he was like, "Oh, they like recentered my flag." <laughs> <laughs> well, 
well, but it should it should be in the center because I, as I've understood it, is that Indianapolis is a city built on a grid. Yeah. But the very center of the grid is a circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes a ton of sense. And so you can actually, not to be too nerdy, but like you, wherever you live in Indianapolis, which is a huge physical city, Mm -hmm. it's like one of the physically largest cities in America, you can point to the part of the flag where you live. Like if you live in the Northwest side, you can point there. If you live Southeast, you can point there and you can sort of use the flag as like, I live approximately here as long as you're inside of the city, like inside of the beltway. Yeah. yeah. I love um, flags that are uh, stylized maps. Like St. Louis has a good one like that. Yes. Um, yes. You know, that's, um, it, that shows the rivers converging into this sort of fleur-de-lis that, is, that represents yeah. the city. Um, it, it, I, I like it. They need to be pretty stylized for them to work, in my opinion. Like Indianapolis is a really good example of that. But when they, when yeah. they work, they work great. I love them. Yeah. And I love the, I love the dark blue. I love the light blue of, of a Chicago same, style flag, same. but I love that. I love that the dark blue works for Indianapolis. Yeah, I think so too. I'm, that's great to hear. I'm just happy to know that Indianapolis was in your mind in any way. <laughs> that's like, we're just happy to be included and have it not be about something horrific. Yeah. Like one time I met with the, the, um, the, the governor and he was like, you know, like, what do you, what do you, what, what do you need to be able to do your business effectively? And I was like, I mean, I need you to shut up <laughs> is the main thing I need, honestly. Like, I need you to like, stop ruining it for me. But what I said was like, you know what, governor, like every time Indianapolis is in the national news, I don't know if you've noticed this, it's bad. <laughs> like Indiana never makes news for being awesome. Yeah, yeah. And so what I would love is for you to stop making news. <laughs> that is a good advice. That's a good advice in yeah. general. <laughs> stop stop pumping the brakes on everyone else's attempt to make this a normal nice place to hang out and recruit and work and live yeah wow and let us have a soccer team (laughs) uh dear roman and john i was driving with my sister the other day when we spotted a car wrapped to look like a clownfish the back of the car said it was for a mobile fish veterinarian which got us thinking how do they do surgery on a fish? Do they do it underwater? Is there a water mask for the gills, like an oxygen mask for people? Do people even get surgeries on their fish? They didn't teach us this in school, Anna. Oh, there you go. I get it. <laughs> I, now, I would assume that a mobile fish veterinarian yeah. is not performing surgeries, but is instead being like, your, uh, your fish is good or your fish is not good. Yeah. And here's some fish medicine. Exactly. But is there fish surgery? And so surely there can't be. I was uh, very intrigued by this because I saw this one. I didn't do uh, tons of research today, but I saw the first I did. <laughs> we didn't do we didn't do anything about Finstas. <laughs> that's for sure. But I did. I saw this one and I was like, I'm very curious about this myself. And there's no way I can make a guess. It turns out, yes, there is fish surgery. In fact, no. Yes. I mean, I would say that most of the time that a veterinarian is called in for a fish, it is like to add chemicals or antibiotics to, you know, deal mm-hmm. with some kind of ick or something like that. But mm-hmm. but for very expensive fish or fish that you're very attached to, probably larger, like I watched 
uh, or I saw pictures of a fish surgery and <gasps> it was uh, something to behold because you, you are right. Like it is not what, well, the, you know, Anna is right. There's, there's kind of a water mask for their guilt. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> oh, so they take them out of the water, they take, but they sort of. Yeah, they keep the water on them. Yeah, they they take them out of the water. I mean, at least the one I saw. They take them out of the water. They they have a tube that goes in their mouth that pumps you know Whoa. water over their gills so that they you know uh, can breathe. Um, they are anesthetized um, and they cut them open. They remove their little lump or something. They sew them back up, and then you have fish surgery. Wow! No, humans are remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's amazing. It's amazing. That is amazing. I mean, yeah. The, the things that we can do when we care. <laughs> exactly. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. We can perform surgery on fish. We can. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. That's that's pretty mind blowing. Yeah. I'm sure somebody's going to send us an email a year from now that's like, actually, we did a study and we found out that fish perform surgery on fish too. <laughs> And here's our here's our paper full of puns yeah. that we published on April first. But it's pretty remarkable that that humans can do fish surgery. Yeah, I love Incredible. it. Incredible. Yeah. All right. I also wanted to ask you this question about cheese. Okay. From Evan, who writes, "Dear John and Roman, I come to you with a question. I work at a cafe that specializes in wine and cheese, and we have two cheese platters: one for bland tastes and one stinky cheese platter. <laughs> We're talking moldy cheeses. Yeah, yeah. Why do only old people enjoy <laughs> stinky cheese. Do younger people have more sensitive taste buds? People under 35 always go for the bland cheeses, Gouda, Brie, etc. Smell you later, Evan. Uh, yeah, actually. <laughs> you know, uh, really? Yeah, our taste buds get older and they get um, oh. uh, less sensitive. And it is, you are more likely in general to enjoy stronger flavors as you get older mm. because those taste buds just aren't firing like they used to. Mm, that's so interesting. Yeah. That explains why, if you told me 15 years ago that a significant portion of my free time would be spent with my mother growing peppers from seed and then like taking care of them in the garden for six months and then over the next six months processing them into hot sauce, I would have been like, what? <laughs> my mom lives next door to me? That would have been my first that would have been my first surprise. <laughs> for your first surprise, yeah. Then my second I would have been like, and I and I love it. Wow. Yeah. Uh and my second surprise would have been that I make hot sauce mm -hmm. um with my mom. But it's so fun. And also I love hot sauce, yeah. which I didn't. 15 years ago. Hot sauce is the best. I love hot sauce too. Oh, oh, I'll, I'll send you some. Yeah, I need some green family hot sauce. I don't know if you like our family hot sauce, but it's you won't complain that it's not spicy enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think the, the two things working here are, um, you know, just like the ravages of time and, um, and also exposure. I think that, you know, if you, mm. you, over time, you try more things, you start to like more things. I think you have a, you you can you can refine your palate through exposure and uh, and and like uh, stinkier cheeses and stronger you know all all kinds of stronger smells and tastes and stuff like that. It's one of the great things about growing older, actually, in my opinion. I agree. I went to a blue cheese like educational evening <laughs> several years ago. You know, like one of those things sure, where one of those things you do. 
Yeah, I don't know. Like Sarah was like, oh, I got us tickets to Blue Cheese Education Session. And I was like, great. Um, and I was very unenthusiastic. This is very standard with me where I'll be like, why are you making me leave the house? It's the only place where I'm happy. Just put me in my hermetically sealed <laughs> box and allow me to eat Ritz crackers. I don't, I don't, I don't need any of this fancy stuff. And then I went and it was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. I learned so much. Yeah. And also I love to experience people's passion. Oh my God. It's like the cornerstone of my entire career, honestly. Yes. It's just yeah. like, I love people who love things so much that I could watch someone, exp- you know, like expressing their love for a thing all day long. I love it. Yeah. 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 And it doesn't, it doesn't really matter that much mm-hmm. what it is. Yeah. Totally. I mean, as long as it's not like something horrible, right. you know, right. like for me, there's not a huge differentiation between people who are extremely passionate about yarn mm-hmm. and people who are extremely passionate about fourth tier English football. <laughs> it's just the, it's the passion. Yeah. It's the, it's the love. It's the fascination. It's the, oh, I forgot to tell you something else that's really, really important about the world's largest ball of twine. Yeah. Yeah. That feeling it's magical. It really is. It really you, is. I mean, that's my favorite part of my job is talking to those folks who really just light up when they talk about, you know, the simplest things that excite them. It's just so, it's so, 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 so good. Yeah, I could, I can totally enjoy a cheese class, even though I am not a stinky cheese guy at all. But um, no, but I would no, be into I, it. I recently went skiing for the first time, which I had no interest in. Yeah. And, I, and I'm 45 years old. I don't think I'm going to become an expert skier. <laughs> Odds are against I, it. <laughs> I mean, on a few levels, right? Like nobody looked at me and thought like, well, that guy's got a chance at the Olympics. <laughs> and anyway, I went skiing. I don't know if you've ever been skiing. Are you a skier? No. I mean, I, no, I just, it wasn't part of my life in central Ohio. Not me. Yeah. <laughs> Same. Exactly. Right? Thank like, very far away from anything that I, and I didn't just never had any interest yeah. in it. But anyway, I went and, um, I didn't, uh, I was, I, I, it was fine. I liked it. It was great. I, you know, whatever It's good time outside, all that yeah. mountains are beautiful, et cetera. But the thing that I loved was our, my ski instructor, mm-hmm. Haley, who loved skiing yeah. Yeah. and like understood it deeply and was passionate about it and needed to like, and needed to share things with me about it that weren't necessarily about like my skiing. It was just about like what makes skiing awesome and interesting mm-hmm. and the things that you're able to do on skis that you can't do without them. And I was like, that's the best part of this vacation for me. <laughs> totally. Totally. Getting to like learn from Haley about skiing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that stuff's beautiful. Agreed. And it is one of the great joys of listening to 99% Invisible. By the way, if you haven't listened to 99% Invisible, I'm extremely jealous of you because you're about to have the best experience. <laughs> you're about to find out that there are actually there are actually really good podcasts out there. <laughs> it's so good. and um, But that's one of the joys of listening to it is that so often you introduced those stories of, of people's deep love of things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and their deep fascinations and you m- kind of model how that happens in a way in some episodes like you allow the listener to experience some of the same magic of falling in love with something yeah what i what i like most about the show and the way it changed me in the past like 
13 or 14 years that I've been doing it. And I have to like really stress over the years, my role in what makes the show great has uh, diminished significantly because <laughs> I have this team of people who make it and are so, so good. And I always say that I'm like the third or fourth or maybe the fifth most important person on any story. Right. Um, but but I'm uh, there for every story, <laughs> you know. Um, right. And, and so but but what I love the most in the, in the terms of that sort of like awareness of the world is these designers of our built world and makers of things are solving problems before you even have them. They're they're They, mm-hmm. in a way, when you operate in the world, you are in the warm embrace of people thinking about things that you don't even need to bother thinking about. They've, they've handled it for you. And it's changed my outlook of, it makes the world feel so much more caring in general, mm-hmm. just by thinking about curb cuts and street lights and you know things like that it just it really really changes my mood when i work on a story you know or or like right as someone else work on a story <laughs> and say oh you right. should move this here you start to see all the systems that people participate in and strengthen for each other yeah. you know like from whether that's manhole covers or sewer systems that the, you know, we are we are all working together totally. on some level to mm-hmm. make things easier for each other. Yeah. And that's so lovely. I know. It's such a it's such a much better way of thinking about what we're up to as a species. Agreed. It 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 it's totally reoriented my brain uh, doing the show. And so hopefully, you know, you get some of that effect when you listen to it too. I certainly do. All right, Roman, it's time for the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. I'll go first. There is no team in professional football. Anywhere, as far as I can tell, on Earth right now that has lost more games from winning positions Mm -hmm. than AFC Wimbledon. And today, as we're recording this, Good Friday, or should I say Bad Friday, (laughs) AFC Wimbledon played Harrogate Town, one of the worst teams in League Two, favorite to go down, not even be a professional team anymore, won't be able to play them in FIFA as, as them in FIFA next season, maybe. We were winning 2-0, two goals from Ethan Chislett in the 85th minute, five minutes to go. And I thought to myself, maybe we're going to win a football game. Mm -hmm. But no. No, we gave up a goal. Stupid goal. Really annoying. And then, in the last second of added time, there was a corner kick for Harrogate. And everybody, everybody, everybody on the field, everybody on earth knew what was going to (laughs) happen. You could see it in the eyes of all 11 Wimbledon players. You could see it in the eyes of the 600 fans who'd traveled to Harrogate. You could see it in my eyes. And we gave up a goal on the last kick of the game and tied 2-2. And I can't do this anymore. I don't. So I I can't. I can't. I, 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 I can't. Why am I letting the quality of my life be deeply affected by the exploits of 26-year-olds who live far away from me? Why? <laughs> And then I was like, I, I went to Sarah and I was like, I we need to invest real money in AFC Wimbledon. And she was like, no, <laughs> no, no, that's a non-starter. And I was like, they need help yeah. in their minds. <laughs> they need mind help. 
because there's nothing wrong with their feet. Yeah. The problem, and I know what this is like because I, the problem with me is also inside <laughs> of my mind. So it's not a criticism. It's just an acknowledgement. And like, I need help inside my mind. And, you know, and Sarah was like, I don't, I, don't, I think we should probably focus on partners in health, buddy. And that's a good point. <laughs> that's a good point. But, God, it's so frustrating. Yeah. Oh, goodness gracious. Mars would never do this to somebody, you know? <laughs> Mars doesn't have a problem in its head. No, it doesn't. It doesn't God, <laughs> it's so difficult. It's so difficult right now. Yeah. Oh. So anyway, hopefully we won't get relegated. Um, even though we haven't won an, an away game in six months, um, hopefully we won't get relegated. So that's the that's the job at this point. There's only six games left in the season, and um, uh, hopefully that's. Hopefully we'll be all right. What yeah, do you yeah, have yeah. any news from Mars? <laughs> is it is a personal question? I guess I don't know anything about the planet Mars. I would say that uh think things are yeah. going good in the in the in the Mars uh, household though. So we're we're going going strong. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. That's the news from Mars I wanted. Like, what's the news from from Mars? Yeah. And the news from Mars is that things are all right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Things are yeah. okay. Yeah, we're doing. You didn't like throw away a two 0 lead in four minutes to the we, we, worst team in professional football. <laughs> no, we avoided that fate, but um, but but there are many other things, uh, obstacles along the way. Yes, no, it's not to say that there are no challenges. <laughs> the great thing about caring a lot about football is that um, uh, is that it's so simple. Like life is so complicated. Yeah. And so difficult. And that's the problem with like getting too involved in football is that it just becomes, then it's like, oh, it's really complicated. But if you just watch the games, um, then then it's so simple. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a flat field. The ball rolls around. Sometimes <laughs> it goes over the line. Sometimes it doesn't. It's, yeah. you know, it's unimportant and in in the best possible way. i've been watching a lot more soccer because one of my um stepkids is a really fanatic about soccer loves 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 soccer goes in the goes to the park by himself for like three or four hours a day to go practice footwork and stuff like that wow that's beautiful and it's really watching is he him is is he interested in a trip to south london (laughs) i think he would be yeah he would be We we need somebody who will spend three or four hours a day at the park working on footwork. If you're opening it up to fourteen year olds, I think you have a you, you would have someone you'd have a taker. But um, but I've been amazed by like how because I hadn't really been to a lot of soccer games. I played soccer as a kid, but um, I, I don't think I understood it when I played it. Um, just yeah, the, to watch the level of thinking for what seems like a bunch of people running around in chaos um is is really something like my my appreciation for it has really grown watching yeah. watching this kid um yeah you know, so uh, it really is an art and it's a kind of brilliance yeah, you know yeah. and when i was a kid i was taught that there's this hard line between sports and creativity and as as such i always thought of myself as being just deeply opposed to sports on every level. (laughs) And it was only when I realized that like what I was trying to do with stories is not that different from what Roberto Firmino is trying to do 
with football mm-hmm. that I that I started to realize like, oh, this is a chance to watch people. It's the same thing. It's like the same thing as getting to meet somebody who knows everything about the world's largest ball of twine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or the competing world largest balls of twine. <laughs> like it, it's the it, it's that same feeling of like, oh, like there's levels to this. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful levels. Totally, totally. And I'll like compliment or say something um, completely ignorant and he'll be pretty generously go, well, that's, that one wasn't a big deal. This part was a big, you know, like he, he's like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, best. yeah. That wasn't, that wasn't the interesting part. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm glad you know. that was the part. I'm glad you noticed that, <laughs> but that is actually very easy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's knowing to be there. That's hard. And that was always my problem playing soccer is that like, I don't have a lot of spatial reasoning. And so the coach would be like, if you just run diagonally, um, you will get to where they are going rather than like running behind them, in which case you will never get to them. And I would be like, no, I think the best strategy here is to run run at the person. <laughs> Not where they will be, but where are they now? Exactly. And then by the time I get there, I'll find that they have moved and I will be shocked every time. Yeah. How could I have foreseen this? <laughs> And then you see the people who are really good at it and you're like, oh, they never even have to make a tackle because they're just always there. Like Mm -hmm. my uh, Sarah played uh, high school soccer. And when I played, I played soccer like in indoor leagues with her and stuff. And we would get to the end of a game and she'd be like, God, you run so much. And I'm like, yeah, but you know where to be. (laughs) The good ones don't have to run. (laughs) Exactly. You know, she'd just be there. Every time. Well, thank you so much for potting with me. Oh, my pleasure. I loved it. Um, I'm so excited to be able to talk with you every time we get to chat. I'm such a fan. So um, this is really cool. Thanks for doing this. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tuna Medish. It's produced by Rosiana Hulse Rojas. I was joined today by Roman Mars from the podcast 99% Invisible, the best podcast you'll ever listen to. Uh, our head of community and communications is Brooke Shotwell. And the music that you're hearing right now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be awesome. awesome.